Welcome to season two of the Price Lab podcast. Most of our conversations this season will be with guests to the Digital Humanities Seminar. These are usually in-person lunchtime discussions, but of course, this is a pretty unusual year. The seminar is being held remotely due to the ongoing pandemic, and we are recording these podcasts remotely as well. We think they sound pretty good, but please excuse any echoes or other glitches while we're temporarily unable to use our usual recording studio. This episode of the podcast features Dr. Jennifer Garcon, Digital Scholarship Librarian at Penn, and Thomas Padilla, Director of Information Systems and Technology Strategy at the Center for Research Libraries. The conversation begins with a focus on collections as data, a grant-funded project Padilla has led that tries to make cultural heritage collections available for computational research, such as text mining. This work is notable for the care it takes to confront the legacies of archival practice that harm marginalized communities. I'd like us to start by talking a little bit about collections as data, and especially kind of the praxis behind it. How did it all get started? I, I try to be careful when I talk about collections as data because it's the sum total of contributions from a lot of different people. Probably around 2014, I was in my first academic library job, and I just had like a really practical challenge in terms of like finding data sets to teach in introductory uh, digital humanities classes. You know, I was looking around, looking around, trying to find data, going to Gutenberg and Internet Archive. And one day I just kind of sat back and looked around and I was like, oh, wait, we have all this data in the library already. It's all these, you know, digitized special collections. It's just that they haven't really been packaged and presented as you know data that could be potentially used in digital humanities courses or in digital scholarship courses. And so then I embarked on a process with some colleagues at Michigan State University to think through you know how we might start to transform, redocument, and provide different access mechanisms for repackaged special collections materials. As I started to you know work on that and then present on that work, I discovered that uh, Stuart Varner was doing something pretty similar at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We linked up and then I was at another conference and I, I ran into Lori Allen and she had been doing some similar work with bibliographic metadata and working with uh, cultural heritage folks in the Philadelphia area. And so the three of us joined forces and then we you know reached out to a couple of other folks and we thought, hey, maybe we should write a grant. Really what we did in that project was you know, try and you know, bring a wide range of different disciplinary and professional communities together to engage with this question of you know, what would it mean to essentially think about cultural heritage collections as data and accordingly, what would it take to promote and support their use in that vein? We tried to be you know, very capacious in our sense of who our target user communities were who potential partners could be in the work. And then for a period of about two and a half years, we you know, traveled throughout a range of disciplinary professional communities, essentially presenting on and also workshopping deliverables from the project. And in terms of the kinds of deliverables that we produce, you know, things that we thought might resonate with different community needs in this space, we tried to be similarly capacious in that sense as well. We tried to produce things that would resonate with people that were expecting different things. One of the things that we felt was really important to provide early on was this Santa Barbara statement on collections as data, which was something that was iteratively developed with various community feedback over the life of the project, essentially meant to articulate core principles to guide the work. We also produced things like use cases, questions to get different teams started, a whole series of different kinds of things that we, we hoped would help people as they were considering what collections as data could mean in the context of their organization and the people that they were trying to serve. 
I really appreciate the intentionality in the project design that it was kind of built on collaboration, bringing people in, bringing different kind of voices in, enveloping people's expertise to really figure out what the problem is and the right approach to it. I came across this statement that said, reparative justice sometimes requires an overt acknowledgement. And it felt very fitting in the way that I wanted to talk today in part because I think that there needs to be that kind of overt acknowledgement as you're engaging these projects that are trying to build in new resources by having a more engaged community and engaged kind of like system of practitioners be involved. With that in mind, this concept of you know, overt acknowledgement as we move toward kind of reparative and like restorative practices, would you mind walking us through the Santa Barbara statement? What we'd really tried to kind of cement at the very beginning of the Santa Barbara Statement was this notion that we can't just be enchanted by possibility or potential because any any potential is, you know, should be paired with consideration of potential peril as a contemporary consideration. But of course, having, you know, sort of historical context to ground any kind of experimentation in this space. So the Santa Barbara Statement opens with broad questions to kind of think through collections as data and a characterization of some initial efforts by some peer organizations in the United States and beyond. But then very quickly, a, a reference to bad things that cultural heritage organizations have done, omissions in the cultural record, methods of description that may have uh, harmed or have harmed underrepresented communities and continue to harm them. So really trying to ground and pair this notion of potential with the reality of historic and contemporary misuse to ensure that we're going to do good, constructive, even reparative work as we're thinking about, you know, what could collections as data mean for our particular organization? Is it a potential opportunity for some justice to happen, for equity to be increased? In terms of the principles themselves, you know, these were initially articulated after the first national forum meeting. So they were the product of thoughts of select group of people that were brought to the University of California, Santa Barbara for a period of two and a half days, and then distilled into some high-level principles to potentially guide collections of state of work. In terms of the principles themselves, like how we imagine them being used, we these aren't necessarily like prescriptive kind of like, you know, you come here for the answer. <laughs> you know, don't want to do bad things, then look here and then you'll get an answer. We did get some pressure during the project like that. Like, I just want to know how to not be biased. And the position that we took as a project team in alignment with sort of community feedback was that it was more useful to have something that was fairly high level that would foster you know, conversations within a particular local context. So rather than having a universal solution, have something, that, a solution that would guide sort of particularized discussions of what it would mean, for example, to develop ethical commitments related to collections as data development and access. We didn't necessarily feel that there was, you know, a one ring to rule them all kind of answer for these things. So the, the principles themselves are fairly high level and they kind of run the gamut. It's everything from a principle about, you know, being guided by ongoing ethical commitments that work against you know, historic and contemporary inequities represented in collection scope, description, access and use to collections as data designed for everyone. That one was kind of controversial. 
because, you know, it kind of runs against some aspirations in cultural heritage work to be neutral or audience agnostic in terms of developing services or developing collections. Our contention was that 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 doesn't really exist, that there's no such thing as neutrality, that there's no such thing as being agnostic, (laughs) that, you know, uh, you should you should be designing accordingly. That you should, rather than assuming needs or imagining communities, stewards should be intentional about who their collections are designed for, work to lower the barriers to use for people in those communities and continue to assess these needs over time. So those are just a couple things and a bit about, I guess, like the thinking and the process and, you know, trying to set the context for this particular contribution. I really appreciate your saying that in part because it really resonates with a lot of the work that I've been doing as well. So thinking about where the gaps in the digital cultural record are, but also thinking about how to pursue kind of post-custodial models that really foreground equity rather than equality, in part because it recognizes that there's a difference between something that is neutral and something that appears objective, that those two things tend to actually be at odds, right? The fact that it doesn't have an overt kind of value attached doesn't mean that historically and systematically that thing is also potentially fostering or being kind of supported by kind of racist and potentially capitalist structures. How do we as a community and as an institution think about what the long-term benefits of broad representation are, while also taking heed of the fact that there are kind of structural and systematic existing relationships between institutions and the communities that they are currently seeking to support, and that those concerns on the part of communities are in fact quite valid, and that approaches really need to think critically about how to deal with that relationship in a way that is reparative and restorative and thinks very deeply about how to engage communities in practice while also thinking about what the long-term ramifications of that kind of engagement could be. I think it's really interesting, right? Because there's there's this like double-edged sword and I'm jumping around a little bit here, but it's in part because the conversation we're having now makes me think back to a realization that I had kind of early on in the work that I've been doing. So I'm a historian and I am a big fan of archives and archival collections and the library as a space for the production of knowledge and all of that. And would have up until maybe two years ago assumed that access and in particular open access is a universal good, full stop, (laughs) right? But the more that I learned about the ways in which appearing in an archival space could potentially go against particular cultural practices, for instance, as we're thinking about Indigenous Native Americans, or if we're thinking about um, LGBTQ folks and the ways in which being presented in an archive could actually be producing harm rather than not, then it, it allows us to push back a little bit on that statement, right? So like what open access, yes, but why and for whom? And so I was wondering if you would mind engaging me in in a conversation just about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, I have the 
Santa Barbara statement in front of me. Let's see, it says collections as data should be made openly accessible by default, except in cases where ethical or legal obligations preclude it. So, for example, terms of use must be made explicit and should align with community-based practices. My feeling is, I think, you know, pretty pretty much in, a, in alignment with yours, is that in a rush towards defaulting, you know, towards openness, that we run the risk of becoming complicit in, in harms to communities. There was an effort by the Global Indigenous Data Alliance you know, they came up with the the care data principles. So I think kind of rhetorically genius on their part to kind of pair fair and care. And, you know, they have, you know, sort of interesting positions that they take in those principles that are very historically grounded and grounded in the contemporary needs as well for indigenous communities that acknowledge a long history of indigenous knowledge being appropriated and made openly available without consultation, you know, with Indigenous communities. So they have, you know, components of the principles like um, I think the A stands for authority to control, which is the idea that as a first principle by default, that the Indigenous community should have the authority to control those data. So it's been really interesting to see, you know, sort of their movement, their principles, their initiative interact with the proponents of FAIR data. And from what I've been able to see so far is that that interaction has been fairly positive. It's interesting to consider, well, how might we apply care principles to cultural heritage collections, right? Like if an institution has a large, you know, collection of Native American knowledge, like how would a library necessarily operationalize the principle authority to control? What might that mean in practice? If X library or archive or museum has the largest collection of indigenous knowledge about a particular topic and you know it's very invested with you know donor money and capital essentially what does it look like for authority to control to happen you know despite the best wishes of curators for the collection will the university necessarily operate in an anti-capitalist way and relinquish control of those data or those collections to a particular indigenous community i think it kind of it's kind of like a time will tell It speaks to the ways in which we find ourselves doing this community engaged and kind of public first facing work as members of a large, well-funded <laughs> research institution, <laughs> right? Like there, I think that it introduces kind of a particularity in the way that one can move and should move, but also the potential considerations of becoming involved with community organizations, small organizations, less well-resourced organizations, and ensuring that the work that we're doing and the practices that we engage are trying to do right by that power asymmetry. For instance, Penn that has seemingly endless resources versus a small community partner. Yeah, that that's kind of a really important thing to take stock of. I've even heard you know people say that among the Ivy League that like Penn is the one that doesn't have as much resources. Where you know it's like if you're outside of the Ivy looking at Penn, you're like it seems like limitless resources, and then if you're outside of like a state like a state R1. It's just like there's all these levels of, of capital that are, you know, really challenging to navigate. 
how do you or how should we go about carving out space for anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, anti-racist work, even within those structures? I did write an article a couple years ago called Collections as Data Implications for Enclosure. And it was sort of like a, you know, trying to think through how we might work against the enclosure of of collections as data by for-profit interest. And at the time I, I thought about it, you know, through a couple of different dimensions. The the first one was obviously like through the collections. There, you know, has historically been a practice of licensing away the rights to collections that would otherwise be open that would you know very much be in the public domain and you know something that could not be vended and you know part of the rationale there for the licensing according to some parties is that essentially it's it's a necessary thing that needs to happen because many special collections are purposefully under-resourced and as a budgetary strategy, a component of, of operations must come from licensing, mm. must come from donor gift. It's actually rarely the case that a special collection is funded in such a way that it does not need to engage in licensing its collections. There have been others that have written that, you know, as a sort of happy medium between the essentially turning the collections into capital is that an organization may reinvest part of money that they receive from that licensing process into open infrastructure, the development of, you say, repositories and things like that. So it's kind of like take money, you know, give this thing away to you know, take some money, support operations, and then also try and support a larger community goal. I'm sympathetic. I feel like a lot of places are in between a rock and a hard place on that question. I think I just had this larger question of like, why is this, why is this the situation in the first place? Yeah. You know, maybe it might actually be better to think of a different path. You know, the other piece of enclosure that I was thinking about was the enclosure of infrastructure. You know, in the time since I wrote this article is that a number of different vendors have come up with platforms to support the analysis of collections as data. Often these come with a price tag now, and it's sort of a unique irony, or perhaps it's just like a standard operating procedure, but many of these platforms are predicated on open source tools that have been sort of then like appropriated and then repackaged into a platform that costs money, right? So it's kind of like, to what extent are, you know, some of these organizations drafting on free labor in order to then, you know, create a platform that other people have to pay for without necessarily them funding money back into those open source efforts. I think that's problematic. I think it's important that we don't get like too enchanted by commodification, essentially, of the collections and then the infrastructure, because I think what is often lost in conversations about enclosure of the infrastructure and the production of these products that is that they're not necessarily just about enclosing the collections and the infrastructure. As the infrastructure develops more complex services, it's also the potential enclosure of like you and me. <laughs> um, you know, the more that you can sort of like turnkey develop services into uh, a vended infrastructure, potentially that threatens um, emerging services and cultural heritage organizations, you know, where you have the digital scholarship librarian or the data science person. So it's kind of, I see it as like this kind of like, it's almost like a vertical, you know, where they talk about 
like a standard oil kind of thing. Like they used to own like the full sort of like supply chain of like the, the drilling, the distribution, marketing of the oil. It's kind of like a similar thing could happen, but like for us as well, like not just the people get concerned about the collections and then they get concerned, get concerned about the infrastructure, but it's like if the collections and the infrastructure get appropriated and then commoditized, then the next step is potentially like our colleagues in the library or the archive or the museum. And I think that that's kind of scary. I think the distinction between like proprietary and open source is one that is, is a really strong one to make, but yeah, you're right. Like you're, we're often in this scenario wherein there's only so much labor and expertise that can be expended towards one things. Right. But if we're not taking care also and being really kind of intentional and critical about the infrastructure that then supports the materials that are being stewarded, can we in fact say that we are doing our own due diligence in our intent to care for materials? We've used this term a lot, but I think that it's worth kind of having a conversation about it. Right. So like. What is community? Can we kind of spend a little time being critical of, of the use of the word or thinking about how it might fit and not fit simultaneously in the way that we're imagining and deploying it? I really torture myself with this question uh, a lot. <laughs> I mean, it has the fluidity in it to operate at a pretty high level as like a metaphor or almost like a WD-40 to kind of smooth transitions between conversations wherein there are multiple communities that are being involved. Um, so when you say something like cultural heritage community, at a certain register of conversation, it allows you to talk about archives, libraries, and museums. Or if you're in the UK, galleries as well. It lets you kind of have a certain conversation at a certain level that can kind of include everyone at the same time. But, you know, as the conversation develops or if there are specific actions that start to emerge, then it becomes more unwieldy as you encounter the reality of just different needs and different, even different core assumptions about how to do work differences between libraries, archives, and museums, and galleries. Or as you get further into libraries, differences between public libraries, academic libraries, or as you get into academic libraries, differences between libraries at community colleges, liberal arts colleges, Ivy League schools, R1s. Or if you consider the same thing, but uh, say just research universities, the differences between the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia, just totally different. As someone you know, leading projects like these, I've had to be very conscious of where it's useful to talk about community in a fairly high level way. And I guess then what it takes to talk about and then also do the work of engaging with communities in a very specific way. And I think that that is a worthwhile challenge for anyone that's thinking about trying to do work that engages people that is more than yourself. It reminds me of the various ways in which there is this multiplicity embedded in the language of community that often goes unrecognized. 
there are just so many communities and they're layered on top of one another and to conflate them as just one thing and how potentially harmful that kind of language could be. But in contrast, it's also a language that really harkens to inclusion in some really interesting ways. One of the things that I'm always interested in and always trying to entangle is why people make the choices they do and whether those things are in fact a choice. And I think that the language of community helps to kind of smooth over both things that are intentional and can be chosen and things that can't either. Like when I'm reading grant proposals, and you'll see a lot of references to like community this and community that. And I often wonder if it would be more helpful to just to instruct people to try and say relationship instead. I feel like sometimes when people invoke community, especially when they're talking about particular work, they're like, you know, I propose to work with, you know, X community to do Y and Z. But it's not always clear, like, well, like, yeah, but like, what is your relationship with this community? Are you a member of this community? Like, do you have a longstanding relationship with this community? Or are you just kind of invoking this community as an object in the larger Mad Lib of your argument (laughs) um, for the thing that you want to do? But it's not necessarily clear if these other parties are, are participants or contributors to, or partners in this particular conversation. And so I often think like, oh, I wonder like if asking people to describe their relationship more often would be better than talking about kind of just like vague references to community. And I, you know, I just think about past experience that I've had witnessing the limits, particularly in a university context of, you know, universities attempting to invoke community to the ends of, you know, initiatives or programs and things like that. And, you know, things that I've witnessed where members of that particular community are actually brought into the conversation. It be, and it can become apparent fairly quickly that there's no relationship or, you know, if there's a relationship, it's not a good one. I think that underlying sort of this notion of community is that we, we need sort of more attention to the extent that investments have been made into actually establishing relationships with particular people. I mean, one of the things that always, or rather that struck me at first about the work that I have been doing in and around Philadelphia is the degree to which I needed to understand the prior relationship between my institution and the community that surrounded it, that there was this existing relationship that was complicated and embedded in decades of history that predated my engagement and my conversation with folks, but it was always kind of lingering in the background, right? So part of the ability to do the work was in fact to strike up a personalized relationship with that individual, with the organization or the institution. In part, it was a bit of a misnomer to assume that our values were shared, right? That there was a bit more work that needed to be done to ensure that we had shared values and designing a project together that was leading to outcomes and outputs that benefited 
both parties rather than one over the other. The work is in the relationship building. It enables everything else to get done, but it's predicated on time and time spent. I think that you're right, focusing on relationships as we think about community or trying to find another way to classify that relationship so that it it is more suggestive of the the kind of emotional labor that's involved in cultivating and nurturing community. Academic life is, you know, fairly I think by design is, you know, ex- exclusionary and, you know, based in sort of hoarding relational capital, mentor relationships, prestige relationships based on affiliation or based on different kinds of projects and you know, that's not the kind of relationship that we're talking about, uh, you, know, you know, here. What we're talking about, I think, is, you know, something that's more equitable and flat as opposed to hierarchical. And for me, as like a first generation college student, as, you know, as a mixed race person that and, you know, being in conversation with, you know, other uh, librarians of color and scholars of color that that are first generation as well is that so much of uh, succeeding in this environment is just trying to figure out in the first place what questions you should even be asking mm-hmm. at first. And you continue to discover like what all the various assumed assumptions are and levels and relationships that folks that come into this from a different background just have access to. They know they have connections and yeah, the relationship piece is so, so challenging. I feel like we need more, more resources and transparency. It's so interesting to me the way that kind of taking stock um, and positionality show up in the work. Because I've been doing a lot of kind of like speaking and teaching about the work that I do. I always foreground it by talking about who I am and why it's important to be clear about my own positionality as I'm entering these kinds of partnerships um, and kind of relationship building activities, recognizing that while I am a Black woman in Philadelphia, I am not a Black Philadelphian. I grew up in New York, you know, like recognizing what that, you know, I am an individual who has this huge institution with resources kind of buttressing and supporting the work. So it creates access points for me that are really amazing, but it also means that the realm in which I'm able to do the work is facilitated by the the resources of the institution, right? And so there's a way in which I try really hard to make sure that what I'm doing and what I'm producing in terms of guides, in terms of workflows, in terms of resources can be replicated outside of of the institution that I'm working in, in part because I think that it's necessarily that the costs need to be alleviated in order to really be sustainable outside of a partnership with an institution. And so if there's any work that I can do it's to alleviate some of those burdens, right? To use my own positionality as someone employed by Penn to redistribute expertise and resources where needed, where wanted, 
in ways that can support communities and support institutions do the work that they already are doing and often doing quite well. But perhaps that work can be expanded. I think all of the work that we're doing is in part coming from our own interests and our own past and our own histories, the way that we've seen erasures or invisibilities in either archival settings, representation, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think we're all kind of like doing our bits and our parts to kind of create more access points and plug more gaps. I mean, I think the one big concern that I have is that kind of the double-edged sword of positionality. I feel like part of that it's a huge component of what makes us effective at what we do. But at the same time, I feel like it holds pretty serious potential for burnout when, you know, individual positionality becomes so centered in the work. It can become hard to create space between the work and yourself. I think about that a lot and I don't have like good answers necessarily, (laughs) but, you know, I think, you know, Fobazi has, has written about this in uh, her uh, vocational awe piece, which, you know, folks should check, should check out if they haven't already. But I feel like that risk of vocational awe is disproportionately felt by people of color. And, you know, especially, you know, when, when the positionality has uh, a direct relationship to the proposed work in position. I feel like that becomes very true across academia in a lot of ways, right? You see all of these reports in the Chronicle about the way, especially tenure track professors of color are often taking on the additional emotional load that comes with kind of their service requirement and how that's in some ways reflective of the ways in which academia has not yet reckoned with how it distributes labor and thinks about the labor of folks of color, of women, etc. And so I guess I have one last question for us. So what would you say kind of energizes you about the work that you're doing? It's interesting to ask me about what energizes me after like such a terrible soul-sucking year last year. <laughs> Just like, the, like, I don't know how many people are feeling super energized right now. Let me see what energizes me about the about the work. I really like working with people. I really like critically engaging with questions of what our work could be and how we might carve out spaces in our community for people to to do the kind of work that they want to do in collaboration with and in service to the kinds of people or communities that they want to support. I like imagining those things with with people from a bunch of different perspectives and synthesizing that into something, you know, whether or not it's a grant or it's a program or it's a national research agenda like responsible operations and trying to turn it into something that other people can take up and implement where they are. That really excites me. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. We thank Michael and Vicki Price and the Mellon Foundation for their generous support.